A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realised that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone following him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why is all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and their disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up, walked around, and she was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. Uh, now if you're following the talk outline, you'll see um, so two thirds of the way through or something, there's a heading, Restoring. You can just put a line through that, I'm not going to really say anything under that heading. So. Um, uh, following where I'm up to on the outline matters to you, you probably want to notice that. Uh, my sister Anne, and some of you know her and talked to me about her during this weekend anyway, is uh, 36. She has uh, three young children. At the beginning of last year, she moved to Adelaide uh, to start a new job teaching at the university there. And uh, one, at the beginning of this new chapter of her life, uh, one night she had some seizures and got raced off to the hospital and they uh, ultimately found um, a brain tumour and so for the last uh, year or so she and we have well have been on a roller coaster ride of uh, surgery and uh, chemotherapy uh, and, uh, and radiotherapy and all the kind of things that Go along with that. Now, there are some local angles to this story. Uh, my dad and stepmom were actually in Port Macquarie at their holiday unit uh, the night that Anne had the seizures, and so I rang Scott, and we couldn't get them on the mobile phone. They turned their mobile phones on and off, and my um, sister and her husband were desperate for them to hear and to, 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 uh, to get that news. 
Uh, so I ended up ringing Scott and asking him to go around and see them. And Scott turned up at midnight or one o'clock in the morning or something to knock on their door and uh, and tell them that, uh, which we uh, we really appreciated uh, very much his willingness to do that. So the experience that Anne and her husband Chris have gone through. Uh, for all of us in the family have made us face up to a reality that at one level of course we knew but seeing Anne go through it just brings it home to us uh, so much more powerfully that our lives are in God's hands and that life and death uh, are something that he controls and that you know, we become very conscious all of a sudden that, that each time Anne has a new treatment each time she's in hospital, every time there's something found, every time she has an operation, uh, she may not live. But of course the truth is that that's true for all of us every day, that we may not live to the end of this day, uh, that our life and our death are in God's hands. And so what I want to think about this morning as we think about uh, Christians in society is some of the issues about life and death. One of the huge differences between the Christian view of life and death and the common view of Australians is that we believe that God rules over life and death. Whereas most Australians uh, think that we should be in charge of what happens. Australians might talk about fate, uh, but they also are pretty keen on avoiding fate, especially if that fate means death. And so we've got a pretty strong feeling in our society that we should be able to beat death, or we want to be able to beat death, and in one sense when you say this, clearly it's a strange thing to think, but even to think that we can beat death. And there are some reasons why we think that. In, at the beginning of the 20th century, 19, uh, in the first decade of the 20th century, 1901 to 1910, uh, life expectancy for males in Australia was 55. Life expectancy for females in Australia was 58. Uh, in the middle of last decade, 2004-2006, male life expectancy was uh, yeah, male life expectancy was 78, and female life expectancy was 83. Uh, so over that century, our experience of death and how likely we long to, we, we are to live for uh, has changed a great deal, and death has become far less obvious. Even more dramatic than those life expectancy changes are the changes in infant mortality. Uh, infant mortality has been reduced by about 90% over that decade. Uh, so that whereas young children dying uh, was really relatively common, um, over 100 in a 1,000 births, uh, the figure was, it's now down to about 4 in a 1,000 uh, infant mortality. So we don't live with the constant presence of death the way people in previous generations have. Our diets are healthier, the drugs are better, the doctors are better equipped, have all sorts of techniques that are available. But it's not just 
direct medical care, all sorts of other things that workplaces are safe, and there's all sorts of ways in which life is safer. And so we do start to feel that life and death are in our hands, that we have this under control. And we are the ones who should decide when people live and when people die. So when we're admitted to hospital, we expect that there will be a test that will diagnose what's wrong with us. We don't expect the doctors just to shrug their shoulders and say, oh, I don't know what's wrong. And we expect that there will be a treatment that will be available for whatever it is that's wrong with us. And even if we're told that our condition is incurable, we expect that there will be ways of dealing with the symptoms that we have. And all of this uh, has changed our society's view of life and death and is a big part of what drives interest and concern about euthanasia. We know so much more about disease and so we can predict far more accurately what people's condition is and, and what the likely uh, course of their disease is and how long they'll live for uh, and how they'll die. And we have medical techniques that keep people alive in ways that in the past they wouldn't have survived at all. Uh, we can control symptoms, we can control pain often. And in our society, many people would say they can think of nothing worse than a painful and undignified death. In some ways, the Australian <coughs> dream of death is to have a heart attack on the golf course. Uh, right? To be able to just be enjoying life and then it just ends and if you've got to die, that's the way to go. We don't want to have to confront death and have it long and painful and lingering. So all of this adds up to a very strong push in our society that we should be the ones who control life and control death. And that individuals should have a right to choose how much pain they suffer, how long their life continues, and I'm sure you've seen the stories that are in the newspaper from time to time of uh, somebody who is asking that euthanasia should be legalised and tells their story about uh, the condition they have and how over the next months and years they expect it to deteriorate and how terrible it's going to be. And it seems like the obvious compassionate thing would be to allow that person to end their life uh, at a moment that they choose. Now, I want to talk about that uh, and, and how we think about the question of compassion. I'll come to that in a moment. But I think the big spiritual question in this issue for us is who is in control here? Do we have the right to decide about life and death? Or is that something that God has preserved for himself? Because one thing that God puts very clear limitations on in the Bible is taking human life. So one of the Ten Commandments, of course, is do not murder, uh, which means to take human life. Now, why does God say that? Is that just some sort of arbitrary rule? No, in fact, before the Ten Commandments, if you go back into Genesis chapter 9, uh, Genesis 9 and verse 5, uh, this is 
God talking to Noah. Uh, God says to Noah in verse 5, Genesis 9. And speaking of Noah, but speaking of all people. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I'll demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. And that's the key to why human life has a particular concern to God. Because we are made in God's image. God doesn't treat animal life, He doesn't treat other forms of life in the same way that He treats human life, because human life is distinctively made in His image. So, look at a couple of other passages to look at this year. Uh, look, for instance, at Leviticus 24. Find Leviticus 24, verse 17. Uh, the same kind of thing as, as, Exodus, uh, as uh, Genesis 9. God says, anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. The next line, anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution. That's very different. If you take the life of your neighbor's animal, uh, then that's a property matter. And you need to repay them for what for the loss that they've had. But to take someone's life uh, is actually to put your own life at, at forfeit under Old Testament law. Anyone who injures their neighbour is to be injured in the same manner, fracture to fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. One who is inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. See, God doesn't make a law about not cutting down trees. Uh, there are some laws about what the people of Israel to do when, when they invade a country. They're not to destroy all fruit trees. But that's not because each fruit tree is, has a sanctity about it. Uh, but again, it's about caring for the, even for the country they're invading. He doesn't make a law against mining. Uh, there's all sorts of ways in which we can change things in his world but he does make a very clear restriction on human life. Now, there are all sorts of debates about what exactly it means to be in God's image, but in one sense it doesn't really matter what exactly it means to be in God's image, uh, as long as we recognise that every person is in God's image. That what it, that's what it means to be human. And to be made in God's image means you are valuable. And you deserve respect and care. It's not just that the rich and strong and the male and people from some particular race or the able body deserve respect and care and their lives are valuable. Every single person is an image bearer and their lives uh, are to be treated with great value. So the idea of the the sanctity of human life is this idea that human life, unlike anything else that God has made, is specially preserved for Him. That He is the one who determines when we live and when we die. 
and we are free to make that decision. Now, of course, we've already seen in those couple of passages that I've read, there, there are some exceptions to this pattern in the Bible. Uh, the two exceptions are capital punishment and warfare. But in the, in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament law, capital punishment is primarily reserved for the examples we saw there of crimes against the people, especially murder uh, and kidnapping and some sexual sins and idolatry. They're really what the main causes for capital punishment are. Uh, so the law in the Old Testament isn't like uh, what happened in some in 19th century England where you could be hung for stealing a loaf of bread. It wasn't a kind of arbitrary uh, capital punishment. It was only for very specific uh, crimes. The other exception was warfare. But again, that was very much an exception. And remember, King David tried to use warfare, or he did use warfare to have Uriah the Hittite murdered. And he was condemned for that. Uh, just illustrating how uh, warfare was not to be used as a kind of carte blanche excuse to have anybody killed that you wanted to have killed. So there are exceptions, but the exceptions are special circumstances. The overall principle is that life is to be treated uh, as uh, sanctified, as set apart for God, is not to be taken uh, by other humans. So the Bible doesn't directly address <coughs> euthanasia, but as we think about euthanasia, we have to start from this principle of saying human life is not ours to take. The other thing that we see in the Bible that is important for thinking about this topic is that God cares for his creatures, especially humans, and that God expresses his character and his desire for the world in his healing. So in Exodus 15:26, God says to Israel, I am the Lord who heals you. That's one of the ways God describes himself to the Old, Te to the Old Testament people of Israel. And of course, characteristic of Jesus' ministry is the fact that he heals the sick. Uh, we've just read uh, one episode of two healings in it, or not just a healing, and restoring a little girl to life, and then healing, or before that, or in the middle of that, healing a woman who's bleeding. And so constantly we see Jesus fixing up and putting to right. Uh, that which is wrong in the people around him as they suffer and are sick and even are dead. And the book of Revelation tells us that on the last day, John says he saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God like a bride, and the voice from heaven says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. When the kingdom comes, there will be complete and full healing and an end to death. So we see that God rules over life and death. He gives and takes life. And one of the effects of sin 
is that God takes life. Part of the curse on sin, curse on our disobedience, is death. But God's gracious character uh, means that his plan for the world is to restore and to heal and to cure. He hates the wounds and the weeping of this world. He is committed to fixing things up. Uh, just as we've, we thought last night about how God is redeeming marriage and sexuality, he's also fixing disease. Uh, not all done now, uh, but it will be in the kingdom. Now why does that matter? Well, it matters because it shows us that our view of life and death isn't simply fatalism. See, Christians can be tempted to say, uh, God rules over life and death, so just leave it all up to him. If God gives life, or if he takes it, we just accept it. And, and that's all. But in fact, that isn't all. Uh, because God doesn't treat life and death in a balanced kind of way. God loves life. And he hates death. He's committed to removing death. And so Christians don't take life. We don't murder. But we're committed to healing. We want healing to happen. And we imitate God when we do that. A God will restore human bodies in the resurrection. And that tells us that it's actually worth caring for people and caring for their bodies. Uh, and Christians have recognised this from very early on. Uh, it was really Christians who were the first people to provide medical care for the poor. Uh, before the Christian era, there were doctors around, of course, but they were basically for the rich, for those who could afford to pay for it. But in the early church, uh, part of the role of the bishop in each city was to have uh, a section of his house set aside for the sick to live in. And uh, very early on, there were special orders of uh, clergy who had a particular task of caring for the poor. Uh, that's really the beginning of modern hospitals. They came out of the Christian concern for all of the poor, uh, all of the sick. Uh, there's an interesting little insight into this when uh, the last pagan emperor of the Roman Empire, Julian the Apostate, uh, came to power. Uh, this was after Constantine, so after Christianity had become the, the religion of the empire. And then there's a new, there's a pagan emperor, pagan emperor. He's trying to undo it, and he writes a letter to the pagan priests saying. We have to set up hospitals and care for the sick the way the Christians do. Uh, because the Christians have won everyone over by the way they do this, and we need to do the same kind of thing. Uh, Basil of Caesarea, back in the 4th century, uh, a little bit after Julian the Apostate, uh, we're told set up a city for the sick outside Caesarea uh, with accommodation and medical care. The early Christians regularly rescued deformed and sick children who were abandoned by their parents. Again, part of the Greco-Roman world tended to be that if you had a, a, a child who was deformed or obviously sick, you'd just uh, abandon them, really effectively just throw them outside on the tip. Um, and uh, the Christians were the ones who went out and rescued those children and set up orphanages. All expressing 
people, whoever they are, are valuable, and life is worth caring for, and we want healing. So what that means is that ending life cuts across God's revealed will, but healing doesn't. And so we should be glad for the achievements of modern medicine. We should be glad that there are x-rays and antibiotics and anesthetics and all those sort of things. And we shouldn't at all think that that's somehow we are defeating God's will by caring for people and restoring people and relieving their pain. Uh, when you're sick, you don't just say, well, this is God's will, I just have to bear it. It's fine to get relief, to look for a cure. Uh, when you've got pain, uh, take painkiller. It's not more godly to persevere with the pain if you can uh, avoid it. And so Christian arguments about euthanasia aren't fatalistic. We're not just saying whatever happens in life, that's what we have to put up with. Our view is actually life-affirming. We're saying life is valuable, it's worth preserving, it's worth caring for. Of course, the traditional view of medicine has reflected that Christian ethic. Traditionally, <coughs> doctors have held that life is precious, it should be protected, that their task is to heal and to relieve pain, but not to end life. But in the last few decades, decades there's been a shift. Uh, the effectiveness of medicine has tempted us to think that we can do whatever we want. Uh, there's also a tendency nowadays, uh, quite a strong tendency, to see life as valuable because it's productive, or because it's enjoyable, or because individuals value their life and are able to make choices and to decide things. And so there's been a shift in how people in our society value life. Away from seeing it being intrinsically valuable because it's made in God's image, uh, to seeing it de depending largely on the capacity of the individual to enjoy their life and affirm their life uh, and make something of their life. Now you may have heard in the news this week about an ethics paper uh, that was published uh, a couple of weeks ago in the uh, Journal for Bioethics which argued that if, if abortion is acceptable, then what the authors call afterbirth abortions should also be acceptable. That is, ending the life of a newly born baby uh, on the same kind of grounds as uh, the authors would say, would end the life of, uh, of a fetus that had, well, at least it, it had some disabilities, or, but in the paper they certainly entertain the idea that might, you know, this preference of the mother particularly might be that this pregnancy not continue and after the birth of the child, uh, the mother's preference might be that the child not live and so that would be a grounds for abortion. Now they argue that by saying what we're concerned about is the interests of what they call actual persons and actual persons by their definition are people who are self-aware and are able to attribute value to their existence and have aims for the future. And they would say only actual persons can be harmed by death. If you're not an actual person, 
if you can't, un can't have some self-consciousness and some awareness of your own aims and your own purposes and your own value, uh, then there's no harm done in your death. Now notice, I mean, the very idea of afterbirth abortion is pretty shocking, but I actually want you to look below that and see what the logic is. The logic is, life is valuable on the basis of self-determination. If I can choose to live, then my life is worth preserving. But if I'm unable to make that sort of choice and be aware of those sort of concerns, then I'm not. So one of the lines in their article says, a consequence of this position is that the interests of actual people override the interests of merely potential people to become actual ones. And that in every case, the concerns of actual persons override the concerns of, uh, of potential persons. Now, why do Christians say it's different? Because of the idea of the image of God. Because we don't think that we give ourselves our value. We actually think God gives us value and God gives every person made in his image value and that's not determined by our capacities. So our whole framework is different. Uh, we don't think that human life gets its value from our choices and preferences but it has its value from God. And so everyone around us is an image bearer. Everyone around us is someone whose life is valuable, who deserves respect. And Jesus shows us what that's like. As I said, Jesus meets so many sick people, and consistently he cares for them. Consistently he shows that they matter to him. Uh, the Gospels make very clear the busyness of Jesus' ministry, the pressures and demands he was facing. And yet, consistently, he takes time to care for the sick and to heal them. So, in the episode we read this morning, there's a great crowd after Jesus, but he's willing to go to Jairus' daughter. Uh, in our culture, uh, children are very valuable. Children are treated as being very important. Uh, perhaps inconsistently in the light of what people think about abortion, but you know, we do actually uh, put a great deal of store on, on children. Um, in Jesus' day, it wasn't the same. Uh, children were very much to be seen and not heard, or perhaps not even seen. Uh, life didn't revolve around children, and children getting sick and dying was a very common experience. Uh, but Jairus comes to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, oh, she's only a daughter, she's only a child. Lots of children die. He doesn't say anything like that. He goes. And then as he goes, he's touched by this woman who has constant bleeding, which would have made her an outcast. It would have meant in the uh, Old Testament Jewish temple system and ceremonial system, she was constantly unclean. She's not a high-status person at all. She obviously needs care, and Jesus heals her and takes time to speak to her and to assure her that her faith has healed her. And so Jesus sets the pattern for Christians of caring for the sick. <coughs> because people made in God's image aren't to be thrown on the scrapbook. Now, of course, in our society, there is a lot of care that happens. 
And, and there are plenty of caring people who aren't Christians. Uh, but the care of everybody, even the weak and vulnerable and the unimportant, is being undermined in our society. At one level, we still have an instinct that all sorts of people should be cared for. But increasingly, uh, there's a tendency to assess the value of people by their own self-determination and by their economic value. And the pressure to bring user pays into medical care. Uh, so that those who can afford the best care receive it and those who can't pay for it don't get it. That's a growing pressure. You have a look at what's happened in the United States and what's how the medical system in the United States operates. And that's largely how it's treated. If there's a huge underclass in the US of people who just can't afford what we would consider basic medical care. At a personal level, the demands of work and paying a mortgage and keeping up the lifestyles that we like uh, means that more and more elderly people are being placed in nursing home care. Uh, now, I'm certainly not saying that's always a bad thing, uh, but one of the drivers for that is certainly uh, families uh, needing to be double income in order to survive in our society. Uh, so whereas a lot of care of the elderly in the past was done at home by children, uh, that pattern's disappearing. Uh, caring for the sick is hard work. And I know there's some people here who are, are nurses and so you know that. Uh, it's messy, it's slow, it costs us time to care for the poor, the, to care for the sick. Uh, visiting someone in hospital even uh, takes time and takes effort or caring for a sick neighbour, let alone the years and years it can cost you of, uh, in nursing a uh, sick parent, an elderly parent. And so it's tempting for us to just echo society and say, we don't have time for this. It's too expensive. It interrupts our lifestyle. But if we follow Jesus, then caring for the sick will have a priority. And it's important to remember that even in Australia, where there is generally good medical care uh, for all sorts of people, being sick uh, especially long-term illness uh, and drawn-out terminal illness can be a very lonely experience. And the Christian community should be a place where we are aware of that and where we make time for people who are sick uh, and who are dying. Now, I'm not trying to make this a guilt trip for you. I'm not saying uh, that you always have to do everything you possibly can for every sick person. Uh, all of us have limited times and limited resources and a range of responsibilities. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, if your next door neighbor's got the flu, you're not allowed to go to work, you've got to take the day off and <laughs> care for them. Uh, we can't possibly do every good thing that we can think of. But like I was saying last night about sexuality, so about life and death, we need to be countercultural. We actually need to say that caring for the sick is valuable. And part of caring is trying to relieve pain. And so we'll probably be concerned about relieving pain. 
Now, having said all that, let me come to how we actually then think about the end of life. Uh, first of all, we have to start from the sanctity of life. We don't think about people's lives in terms of self-determination or in terms of economic value, but see that each person who their life is valuable because they made in God's image. In a culture where an easy death seems like a good option, uh, we have to say we think life is worth preserving, especially when the particular pressure uh, for an easy death will often be on the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, and uh, the evidence of places where euthanasia has been put in, places like the Netherlands, uh, is that there is a particular pressure on the weak and the poor and the vulnerable to accept euthanasia, uh, not because they're in extraordinary pain, but because their life has become a burden on those around them. Of course, the people that we tend to see in the newspaper asking for euthanasia are, you know, the rich baby boomers who don't want to get old. But the people who will face the prospect of euthanasia will in fact be the disabled. Uh, the elderly who can't afford medical care, people with mental illness who latch onto euthanasia as a permissible form of suicide, when if their mental illness was treated properly, uh, they wouldn't continue to want to die. At the same time, we do want to try and relieve pain. Uh, pain is not a good thing. And there is a great deal that modern medicine can do to relieve pain. Uh, you know, palliative care, care for people with terminal illness who are dying, uh, is very good. If it's done well, it can be very effective. And there are some times when treatment of pain, at, uh, especially in a terminal disease, does shorten a patient's life. Uh, when morphine is administered in the last stages of a terminal disease, it does lower someone's respiration rate, and that can bring death on a little bit faster. Although actually that isn't usually the case, usually the doses of morphine can be so that's not really what happens anyway, but there is a possibility that can happen. Uh, and I don't think that in itself is something that we have to be worried about. Uh, when we administer pain relief, clearly for the goal of relieving pain, and it has the secondary effect of perhaps slowing respiration rate and bringing death on slightly faster, I don't think that's something we have to be terribly careful. I don't think it's something we have to be concerned about as well. Uh, because what we're doing is aiming to relieve pain. The other thing that's important to say is we don't have to do everything possible to keep someone alive. Saying that we stand for life, not death, is not the same as saying that we'll do everything we possibly can to keep someone alive. That is a bit of a temptation in modern medicine, that uh, we've got the equipment and the skills uh, to keep people alive for extended times, but there certainly are times when it's better to accept death, allow it to come quickly rather than extend it uh, painfully, rather than extend the death of the life painfully. But there's a big difference between allowing someone to die and providing some pain relief and some comfort while they die 
a big difference between that and actively killing somebody. So, so-called active euthanasia is killing. It's taking an action, giving an injection or something, which aims to bring someone's life to an end. What's sometimes called passive euthanasia, allowing someone to die, can often be appropriate, not always appropriate. Uh, I mean, the obvious sort of thought experiment is if someone was out in that lake drowning, well, they'd have to be a long way out in that lake to actually be drowning. Throwing them in the lake so they drown would be murder. But if you could rescue them, it really is also murder to fail to rescue them. Uh, so allowing someone to die is not always the right thing to do. But in the case of a terminal disease where the person is going to die anyway, uh, allowing that to happen and caring for them as it happens, uh, without doing everything possibly you could to extend their life for a few weeks or days, uh, that's sometimes called passive euthanasia. But it's really a very different approach to active euthanasia. And I actually think it's been a sleight of hand by the euthanasia lobby to start to call allowing to die passive euthanasia. So that then they can say, well, we allow euthanasia already. We allow passive euthanasia. What difference does it make if we allow active euthanasia? But I want to argue they are quite different things. They come from a very different mindset. One is killing, the other is allowing death to come. Well, let me finish by just talking about a few immediate personal issues, perhaps, and a wider social one, uh, and then a, a final story. Uh, can I say, first of all, if you or one of your family members uh, is seriously ill and facing death, uh, it, it's important, as far as you can, to try and understand what's going on. Uh, to ask the medical staff to explain, and to explain as clearly as possible what they understand the condition is, what the treatment's going to be, what the likely course of the disease is going to be, what the treatment options are, and to keep asking questions. Uh, medical staff are highly qualified in the technical areas, uh, but although they often have ethics training, uh, I don't think we should at all assume that they are well qualified to make, make those decisions about life and death. And the theory in the Australian health system is they're not meant to. It's meant to be in consultation with patients and their families. Uh, but it does often take some courage to, in a polite way, keep asking questions and actually find out the information. Uh, but can I encourage you not to be afraid of doing that? Medical staff should explain what's going on. And they should allow patients and family time to ask their questions and process the information and work out exactly what's happening in this case, as far as they can. Um, can I also say, don't protect a dying person from facing what might happen. It's a difficult conversation, but to actually sit down at their hospital bed or wherever it is and if it's your job and kind of, you're the family member who's going to do it, to actually talk through with them uh, what they want, what sort of treatment they want, what they don't want, uh, whether they want to uh, be resuscitated if they have uh, a heart attack or a respiratory arrest or something. Uh, 
and actually talk through with them how they want to be treated. Rather, the temptation is to think, oh, it's too painful to have to contemplate what death might be like for them. But you see, we live in a society where there's so much that can be done, but we have to ask, you know, what exactly do we want to have done? And so we have to have those sort of conversations. Uh, if you're in that sort of circumstance, or you have a family member in that circumstance, it is worth thinking about having an advanced care directive, where you actually write out what treatment you want in certain circumstances. And uh, the New South Wales Health Department actually provides those on their website. There's a standard form which you can complete. Um, and I think that's worth uh, thinking about if you have the if, if you have the time or you're in the situation where that might be useful. More widely. Uh, like same-sex marriage, I think we should oppose the legislation of euthanasia, of active euthanasia. euthanasia. Uh, the push for euthanasia is based on a view of life and death that is the opposite to the Christian view. And it undermines the practice of medicine. Uh, medicine is meant to be a vocation of healing of care, not of ending life. And it does put the weak and the vulnerable at risk, and as I said, the evidence in the Netherlands is that the pressure comes on to the elderly uh, to accept euthanasia, even when uh, there's no clinical reason for that. So we should try and make it clear to, to uh, government and to uh, legislators who are thinking about this that there are good reasons to oppose legalising euthanasia. But like the same-sex marriage issue, it's just as important, perhaps more important, that we as Christians, as churches, are countercultural about this. That we care for the sick and the dying and the weak and the disabled. Uh, that we show in our actions that no life deserves to be put onto the scrap heap. That's why one of the things that I'm really pleased that the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales has done is that it took on several years ago Alawa Hospital. Uh, Alawa Hospital uh, is a hospital dedicated to the care of severely disabled children. And in fact, it was the only service of that kind in New South Wales. Uh, it was in private ownership, wasn't making money, and was in risk of, the, of being uh, closed. And if it had been closed, uh, that service just wouldn't have been available. And, and so these are kids who are awfully physically and intellectually disabled. The, the most weak and vulnerable people in our society you can imagine. And for families who have uh, children with those sort of conditions, it becomes a, a, an awful burden uh, of knowing how to care for them and trying to find medical care for them. Uh, and Alan does a great job of caring for these children and caring for their families, caring for them as valuable image bearers. And as we care for them, uh, we're reflecting God's character and God's values. Uh, so I'm really glad that the Presbyterian Church took what was a fairly significant risk of taking on this ministry and uh, continues to raise funds for it. Uh, and so that's the kind of thing that I hope Christian churches will be known for. Uh, that in a culture which will tend to accept death and devalue broken lives, uh, that it's a way of celebrating life and showing the importance of all who are God's image.
and then see if there's questions or discussion. thing I've said a few times this week, that in Christ and by the Spirit, God has brought redemption, but it's not all here yet. And so we live in that tension. So to say all, you know, Christians should expect that, that, that all diseases are healed, is, to, is really to say that Revelation 21, no more death or mourning or crying or pain, has already come. That the kingdom has come down in its fullness. Uh, and we need to say that's not the case. Uh, we can't claim now a promise from God that there's total healing for all Christians. Uh, because there's not a promise from God now. That's a promise for the future. Uh, I, I think though, one of the dangers is sometimes we then overreact to that and um, we don't think God would ever think. Uh, and I remember when I was in ministry in Cowra, um, one of the uh, elders of our church, who come from a Pentecostal church background uh, sometime before, uh, said to me, John, I've been listening to you when you pray for um, people at church and pray for people who are sick, and you never pray that they'd be healed. You always pray that, that they'd be sustained and, and strengthened and be given grace. And, you know, that was actually quite a rebuke to me. Uh, he said it very gently, and it was really just an observation. But I thought, wow, if that, that actually doesn't reflect God's desire if I never ask him to heal. So there, there's a matter of a balance. I mean, I think it's terribly destructive to say to people, if you don't have enough, if you have enough faith, you must, you will be healed. And if you don't have, if you're not healed, it's because your faith has failed. Uh, that is uh, awful. Uh, and some of you probably know my, my dad is a doctor, or just recently retired, he's a doc, was a doctor in Tarare, and he was born out in Tarare as a Christian uh, doctor. And uh, over the years, he's often had to talk to people who had been sick, had gone to some sort of healing ministry or healing crusade, especially someone travelling through town, had been told that they'd been healed, and then a few weeks later realised actually the symptoms were still there, and then... You know, so that's devastating for someone's faith, as well as for their, their normal medical treatment, because they've often stopped their treatment because they thought they were healed, and in fact they would have been far better to maintain their treatment. Uh, so there are real dangers in it, but, but there is a danger on the other side as well, as to saying God's not interested in our bodies. I think we should rightly expect to see uh, glimpses and hints of the kingdom in the Christian community. Uh, and that, in this area, that we express both with our compassionate care for the sick and from time to time, uh, you know, what looks to us like miraculous healings. I don't think we should be concerned about praying for people to be healed. Um, it's part of our expression of our compassion, but not over-promising what God might do. So it's similar to what we were talking about last night about um, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, through this life, even for Christians, uh, there can be an ongoing struggle with sexual orientation and sexual temptation, also with other temptations, and there certainly can be an ongoing struggle with physical health and illness. Uh, so we live in that tension. John, what's the Christian 
Thinking about organ donation. About organ donation? Mm. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you what I think my conclusion is, then I'll give you some reasons. What I, I know what my conclusion is, I'll give you some reasons. Uh, in general, I don't think there's any problem with organ donation. Um, why? Uh, because, of our, because of our commitment to healing and restoration and care, on, on the one hand, that um, you know, here's a way of doing good to our neighbour. Uh, lots of, in most cases, organ donation, even in our death, we, yeah, our, our bodies can be some good to our neighbours, that's good. Our view of the resurrection doesn't hang on at all. Uh, Christians have always known that God can raise bodies, whatever's happened to them, if they've been burnt, if they've been eaten by sharks. I mean, for thousands of years, Christians have talked about this and they've never had, you know, they've always come to the conclusion of God. We don't need to keep our bodies somehow uh, together as much as possible to make the resurrection easier for God or something. He's got it under control. Uh, and as you know, in, uh, if, you're, if you're buried, your body will rot over a few years anyway. So, so I don't think there's any problem with um, with, with, with that. Uh, I don't think the blood laws of the Old Testament or anything like that stop us from from giving uh, from donating organs. Uh, so generally, I, I, I think I'm certainly my license and organ donor and I've told my family that if I'm killed in a car accident I'm not sure if there's any part of me that's much use but if it is um, you know, will, I, I'd be very happy for, it to, for my body to be used in that way. The only, thing, the only thing I can really see that we need to keep an eye on is how it might link to euthanasia. There's a potential that there can be pressure to end a, a terminal illness faster than it should be so that the body can, so that organs can be harvested. Uh, now, the, in New South Wales, I think it's true in every Australian state, um, there's pretty strong, there's very clear legal limitations on that. But of course, legal limitations don't always stop practice. But as I understand it, that's not a big concern in Australia at present, I don't think there's much pressure. That way. But it is, I mean, I think that's the one place where we need to be careful about organ donation. Yeah. But of course, if, I mean, if, if there were more people who were organ donors already and had said that they were happy to have their organs donated and their organs used, then um, that would actually reduce the pressure on, on kind of euthanasia for, for organ donation. One other, the only other issue. Uh, that I want to mention is, is just the, the, the bigger issue of medical ethics, I think, is, is cost. And, and that's a hard one about how much money do we spend on. You know, a heart transplant is a hundred, multiple hundred thousand dollar exercise. Uh, and yet, there are people, certainly even in Australia and certainly in other countries, where a few hundred thousand dollars spent would do a great deal of good for a lot of people. And how, I mean, that's hard, how we work out how to balance those things up. But I don't think it in principle says all the donations are wrong. Do you think there was a, in Jesus' time, because he was Jesus, he was God, uh, there was a lot more healing to show that he had power yeah. and, uh, than there we see today, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. But we still could expect to see miraculous healing today in glimpses, like you said. Yeah, yeah I'm not trying to say how much. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's in God's sovereign providence, and if He 
decides in one case that there will be a miraculous healing. That that's his, and if he decides that at a certain time in history, for some reason, that there'll be a bunch of them, well, that's his to do. Um, I don't think we've got any way from the Bible of predicting that. But I think we just have to be done, we have to be aware of overreacting and saying, no, no, God never does that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Or God always does that. Well, I think saying God always does it is perhaps yeah. even more yeah. damaging yeah. to individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I mean, it's only kind of anecdotal. I'm not sure anyone's done any great study about it. Not that I know of, anyway. But there is a fair bit of evidence that when um, the gospel goes into areas that are underdeveloped and haven't heard the gospel before, God often does use healings. Um, to testify to Christ, as he did in the apostolic era. Uh, and so God does seem to do things in developing countries that we don't hear about happening in Australia. Um, and I just think we just say, well, it's got the prophets. I mean, it's good to pray for these things, and we leave it to God to see what he's going to do. The, the healing, it's, it's healing, but um, it's relieving that person of whatever illness they may have. Um, Leaves them, which is wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm, I've known that for a fact. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I've known the people who died, yeah. and and he's brought them back to life again yeah. and, and relieved them of, of their yeah. Uh, yeah. pain. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. And we should. We just. I think we, we shouldn't in our minds have a big division between normal medical healing and miraculous healing. Uh, if if you're given the right drugs and you recover that way, or if someone prays for you uh, and you feel better, well, praise the Lord either way. And of course, most Christians in the West will do both. Um, and God uses ordinary means and extraordinary 